As you're taking your seats, you can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 1. So, looking at our passage today, uh, last week we looked at John 1, 1 to 18, and this week we're looking at the next section, John 1, 19 to 34. Would you hear as I read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word? And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and had born witness that this is the Son of God. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray that he adds his blessing to it. Our Father, we come before you because you are the giver of illumination by your Spirit who you have baptized us with. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would hear what you would have us apply to our lives today. Draw us closer to Christ, whether for the hundredth or thousandth time, or for the first time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, there are different ways that you can describe something. One of the ways in theology that you can describe something is sometimes by saying what it is not. So we say things like, God is not a man. In and of his substance, he's not a man. Now, he took to himself true human nature at the incarnation, but we would say God is not a man. Jesus says God is spirit. We say God is not confined to one place, but he actually fills all of space and actually extends beyond the created universe. So you can say what something, you can describe something by complementarily saying what it is not and what it is. And something like that is occurring in our passage today where John is describing Jesus first by saying who he is not and who Jesus is. And the reason it's important for us to see exactly what John is describing about Jesus is because John says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who takes away our sins 
and baptizes his people. And so that's what I want you to see through this passage today, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who takes away our sin and who baptizes his people. Well, John, as he is describing to the messengers of the priests and Levites, um, you know, they're asking him who he is, and John clearly confesses, yeah, I am not the Christ. Then he says, I, well, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? And John says, I am not Elijah. Well, why would they be looking for Elijah? Elijah, if you remember, is one of only a couple of individuals who didn't die a natural death. He was whisked away to heaven in a whirlwind. And the Old Testament in Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the people, or some of the priests and Levites, obviously, they are expecting perhaps Elijah to literally come back physically from heaven to be a messenger before the Lord, before Jesus again. Uh, But Luke makes it clear that the literal, physical, actual Elijah wasn't to come. It was John the Baptist who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Luke 7, Luke 1, he, that is John the Baptist, will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay, John, well, so you're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And they're echoing, they're, they know their Old Testament in a sense. Uh, they know enough about it to know that Moses said, that God said through Moses, or I will raise up for them, for the people, a prophet like you. I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. So they're expecting the capital P prophet who's going to be like Moses that comes to his people. So are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Well, John clearly says who he is not. And as I was reflecting on this passage, I remembered a wedding sermon uh, from about five years ago. So as a pastoral intern, you know, I have a relationship with the bride and groom So we're invited to the wedding. I also have a special interest because, you know, the pastor of the church is giving the message, and so I'm paying particular attention to this. And his wedding message uh, was this passage. And he had the groom turn to the bride and say, repeat after me to your bride, I am not the Christ. And then he had the brides turn to the groom, repeat after me, I am not the Christ. Now, of course, as you're Thinking about that, what's, what's a great temptation of two newlyweds? You're the one who's going to fix everything for me. It's all going to be good now, right? So it's something they really need to hear. But this is something we need to hear. Remember who you are and who you are not. And as you look to your left and right to people who are significant in your life, whether they're in this room or not, who they are not. They are not your Christ. You have one Christ here revealed in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that your other relationships are insignificant or not important, but remember who you and they are and who, and who they are not. Well, but who is John? John says, I am not these things. Goes, well, what are you? I am a voice 
crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So this is reflecting Isaiah 40, uh, whenever the statement is made that John quotes, make straight the way of the Lord, uh, a way in the wilderness. Now, John is, you could say literally, in the wilderness, but this is also just a figure of speech. John is not literally supposed to build a road in the wilderness to prepare, you know, Jesus to walk down, right? John is preparing the way in a spiritual barrenness, in a, in a land of spiritual barrenness, in an empty wilderness, he is preparing the way, not by building a road, but as Matthew 3 says, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Son of God is imminent. And so repent. Now, what I want you to see here is, as John is preparing the way for the first coming of the Lord, this should always make us think about the imminence and preparation for the second coming of the Lord. Now, we're not the same exactly as John the Baptist, you know, a prophet preparing the way for the first coming, but we are a voice in a spiritual barrenness to say, repent, God's return, Jesus' second coming is imminent. Are you prepared? This is what drives the very uh, this is the fuel that drives our missions, our evangelism, because the, re- the second return is imminent. And so we as the church have a responsibility, uh, whether it's ourselves and our personal relationships or corporately as the church, to enable missionaries uh, to be able to call others to Christ because we are preparing the way. As I reflected on this, I, I have, you know, movies and old rock songs bouncing around my head all the time. And so uh, there's a rock song by Pete Townshend, and it contains the words, you know, teenage wasteland. You might have heard this song. And, and he's singing about the literal, physical wasteland of teenagers at Woodstock in the 60s. And he, he's pointing the finger of... Uh, of chastisement at them, calling it a teenage wasteland. And I just thought, you know, we are in a spiritual wasteland. This is where our mission field is, to prepare the way, because there is one coming after. This is the first coming, but there is a second coming. Well, that might be how it drives us as the church, but I want to ask you, are you prepared for the second coming of the Lord, which is imminent. If he returned today, because it can happen, as Jesus described, like a thief in the night, you don't know when it's coming. Are you prepared? The question has been posed, if Jesus came back today or this moment, would you be ready for him? I challenge that. Well, John is not only a voice in the wilderness, John is a baptizer. Verse 25 the, the, the messengers are asking him, why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ, Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John is baptizing with water, a baptism of repentance for the purpose of 
the one who is coming after him, preparing the way for Christ, for Jesus himself who's coming. Now, John says, among you, this, this one who's coming after me, there stands one among you you do not know. Now, we think what John is speaking here, not that Jesus is literally standing in the crowd at this moment, but that he is living in their midst and they don't know him. They may not know him personally, the scribes, Pharisees, and their messengers. They don't know him personally. They don't know him by sight necessarily, but they especially don't know him as the suffering Messiah. Even if they have an idea of who this no-name Jesus of Nazareth is, which they probably don't, they certainly don't know him as the suffering servant. They expect him to come first as the conquering king, to free them from the Romans, to, to make Israel the prominent nation again. They don't know him, John says. And John says, it is one whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. As John recognizes his place in humility, he elevates Christ. That's one thing I want you to notice here is John is a pretty big deal right now. They're asking him if he himself is the Christ or at least Elijah or the prophet. And John is about to be upstaged. John has an awesome ministry going on, doesn't he? I mean, so much so that he's being asked, are you the Messiah? John's about to be upstaged. And as he's about to be upstaged by Christ, he reflects honor to Christ. As he is going to be humbled, in a sense, he reflects that glory to God. I want us to think about that. You can, Pastor Kurt's going to have a sports analogy here. This doesn't happen often. You can write it down. But don't worry, it's backhanded. So as I was thinking, I was reflecting on this, I thought about all those moments in sports history where the winning quarterback, the winning point guard, whoever, they've won the game and they give glory and honor to God. But have you ever heard a quarterback say, you know, I want to give God glory and praise because we lost today? He really humbled us. He's really teaching us something. Now, I'm not trying to disparage or doubt the, the genuineness of the faith, uh, of the profession of faith that some of these sportsmen have uh, for Jesus Christ, but my point is this. Reflect honor to God when you are big and when you are small. This is what John is doing. He's about to be very small because there is one coming after him whose sandal strap he's not worthy to untie, and he's reflecting honor to God. Because he is, the next day, the Lamb of God, the Christ, the Son of God. He is the real baptizer. In a sense, you could say John's baptism, John's baptism of water is just symbolic. It's figurative of the real baptism that's necessary, which Jesus does by the Spirit. So the next day, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said... After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Here, John gives Jesus identity. I think it was J.C. Ryle. You know, he's, Ryle says something along the lines of, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and it's all true, but there are some scriptures, passages that are 
more rich than others. You know, all this, all this, verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. That's an inerrant, infallible, true statement in Scripture. But the richness, he says, that is in that verse, that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus is the one who will take away the sin of people from every tribe and tongue who trust in the Lamb. Saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God is illustrative. John John is hearkening back to an Old Testament illustration, the use of a lamb in sacrifices. And as the sacrifice, uh, as part of the sacrificial system, at some moments, as the sacrifice was brought forward, the individual would place their hands upon the lamb. And there are several things that Charles Spurgeon points out that in in placing the hands upon the lamb that was about to be sacrificed, that there is, number one, there's an admission, a confession of sin, that there is a consent to the plan of substitution, that this this lamb is going to die in my place, that there is a sacrifice that must die in my place, that as the hands are placed, there is thirdly an acceptance, an acceptance of the substitute In the sinner's stead. And then lastly, that there is a leaning and a dependence upon the substitute. Now, whether or not all those things are explicitly uh, uh, explicit there in the Old Testament sacrifice, it is at least still very, very true of Christ, who is the real Lamb of God, that there is an acceptance, there's a confession, there's a leaning, there's an acknowledgement that he is a sufficient substitute. And what I want you to take away from here, from this moment, is that there is no other sacrifice for sins. There is no other substitute. There is no other lamb. This is the lamb of God, definite. This is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know this sacrifice? What will you do with your sin? And even if you've come to Christ before, even if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a temptation and a tendency, even as Christians, to be recondemned, to forget, to, to be, I've done it again, I've done it again, and now I'm ruined. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The other thing I want you to see or realize in broad evangelicalism today and even in our even in our own denomination in our churches and in broad evangelicalism today there is a misperception of the salvation of the Old Testament saints there's a perception that oh well you know because they because Jesus didn't come yet they were saved by obeying the law or they were saved by the sacrifice of the, the, of the bulls, the goats, and the lambs. Well, Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Everything that the Old Testament system showed points forward to Christ. They weren't saved by obeying the law. Just like we, New Testament saints, look backward in time to the cross, the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming Messiah, 
foreshadowed by all the system of the Old Testament. So salvation in the covenant of grace across all history is the same. Because man failed in the covenant of works, God established a covenant of grace. And that Old Testament church looked to the cross just like the New Testament church does. Same salvation, the Lamb of God. There is no other Lamb, no other salvation in the Old or New Testament. Now, sometimes preachers can open up a word like the Lamb of God for this deep or broad or complex application like diving into deep water, so to speak. But I don't want this next one to be deep like water as much as a warm, comforting blanket. And that is this. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been taken away, covered. If I could rephrase this, I would say, the Lamb of God who takes away the world, the entirety of your sin. And there is nothing that can separate you because it has been taken away. That's why Paul says in Romans, there is neither nothing that can separate us, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come nor powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I mentioned earlier, we can irrationalize ourselves into condemnation. Can't we? I've messed up again. Now I'm really done for. And Spurgeon says, let artful doubts and reasonings be nailed with Jesus to the tree. Let those irrational, clever ways in which you recondemn yourself, let artful doubts and reasonings be nailed with Jesus to the tree. Remember that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who takes away the world of your sin. What else does John say of Jesus here? That he ranks before me. Jesus is coming after me, but he ranks before me. And this is a powerful statement because he was before me. Notice the deity of Jesus Christ is recognized by John right as he comes on the scene. This man, Jesus is not simply a man. He is a God-man who was before me, who existed as the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament to be called Wonderful God, Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father. But Jesus is not simply divine. And before John, notice that Jesus is another kind of baptizer. John baptized with water, but the one who comes after me, who ranks before me, he says, verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, John says twice here in this section, you know, I myself didn't know him, but then the Father, you know, other gospel accounts make this clear, the Father is the one who's speaking, and John hears the Father say, the one you see when you baptize Jesus, the one you see the Spirit come down and descend upon, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so this, John doesn't know him, but then when the Father speaks and he sees the Spirit descend, he 
really knows him. And as I was reflecting upon this, I, I thought about, you know, if, if you think about the favorite book or, or movie that you might have that someone else doesn't know, like, oh, uh, yeah, sure, I've heard of Lord of the Rings. You know, I know it's got hobbits and elves and dwarves and, you know, things like that uh, and a ring. So I, I know it. And you think, oh, but if you, just, if you just read it, oh, you would love it. You would know it. And that's sort of the difference that John has here. He, Jesus is John's cousin. He knows of Jesus, but until this point, whenever he's baptizing, he sees the Spirit descend, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's like, now John has read the book. Now John has seen the movie in a certain sense. He has seen a greater revelation of the Christ. He's going to be the one who baptizes with the Spirit. And so what does it mean that he's a baptizer with the Spirit? He is the one, Jesus is the one, who is going to regenerate hearts, to cause people to see their sin, to bring them to spiritual life, to to cause them to look to the Father and say, forgive me for my sins. I need Jesus' blood to cleanse me. I want you to realize this. You must be baptized. Now, when a lot of people hear that, especially in other church contexts, they might think, oh yeah, got to be baptized, got to have that water. That water is a representation of the real baptism that you need, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, because it is through faith in Jesus Christ that the Spirit cleanses you. Ezekiel says he will sprinkle us with clean water, that there is a cleansing. And notice also there's, again, a just as in the first section that we looked at last week, this realization of the word being with God and God, that there is a reflection of the Trinity here again. In verse 32, the Spirit descends, and the Father is the one speaking, and the Son is the one being baptized. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all there, the three distinct persons of the Trinity in their different operations as persons. The Father being the one who declares, the Son being the one who accomplishes salvation, the Spirit being the one who applies it, who is the one who cleanses and baptizes as Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. As I was reflecting upon this this element of Jesus being known, but not fully known, that, that there's a fuller revelation that he comes to, that even reflects our situation in which we sit today. We know Jesus in a sense. We know him as our savior if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which we are still waiting for a greater revelation, a greater realization of him as he comes. We know him as God and as man, as both. But there's still a revelation we're awaiting. And as I thought about that, this will balance out my sports analogy because I thought of a movie. So at the end of, uh, if anybody of you don't know me, which I think there's several guests here, I'm a superhero, comic book, you know, movie nerd. So at the end of one of the Marvel movies, Iron Man. Iron Man's a peculiar superhero. Most superheroes, or many, who have a dual identity, 
uh, they conceal it, right? Nobody, nobody in the mass public is supposed to know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Nobody's in the mass public is supposed to know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man or that Bruce Banner is the Hulk. Well, at, at the end of Iron Man, who is simply a, a bazillionaire who has an expensive metal suit that he wears, at the end of Iron Man, there's a press conference and Tony Stark, who is Iron Man, is there with his flashcards that he's supposed to lie about or that he's supposed to use to lie and talk about the man in the metal suit. And as Tony Stark is looking at the cards, he just thinks for a moment and then he puts it down and says, I am Iron Man. And then the, pre, you know, then the press all gets up and the papers start flying, microphones start jittering and you hear the clamor because there's a greater revelation, a real, you know, you as the movie goer, have seen and know that Tony Stark is Iron Man, but when you watch the revelation of it and you see the clamor and then cut to credits, uh, it's a, a powerful, good, uh, fun ending to a movie. But that is, you know, superheroes are simply shadows of the true archetype that is Jesus Christ. He's the one whose revelation we're waiting to see. That's greater than any reveal of dual identity that we could see here on earth. I, of course, as I'm listening to the Christmas music station and I hear those amazing words in, Mary, did you know? Did you know that the baby boy that you deliver would soon deliver you? Did you know that your baby boy was heaven's perfect lamb? The child that you're holding is the great I am. Do you know him as John has realized? Have you been baptized by the Spirit? And if you do know him as John has realized, and if you have been baptized by the Spirit, I want to challenge you with this. What are you anticipating the most? You know, Christmas morning, I, right, little kids? Can't wait to open those presents. I can't wait to retire. I can't wait for the next promotion. I can't wait uh, to PCS. I can't wait till my boss PCSs. <laughs> moves on, for anybody who doesn't know what permanent change of station is, moves away. What are you anticipating the most? What is the revelation that you cannot wait to see? It should be this one. Jesus Christ came once. And why do we need the God-man? Because he needs to be perfectly God so he can be and live the sinless life. He needs to be fully man so that he can live, so that he can live as a man, the same in our nature and die in our behalf to be the real lamb who dies in place of us. And we should have an anticipation as we look at anything about his first coming we always never disconnect the first coming from his work and his second coming. Never disconnect the birth from his death, his resurrection, and his imminent coming again. This is what we're waiting for. There is something more that we will see. John says this in his letter of 1 John. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so what John is implying there. We don't currently see him as he is. We know him as he is. We know him 
as the only begotten Son of the Father, sent on behalf of us to die for our sins, but we have not seen him as he is, and we are waiting for that revelation when he comes and we see him in the clouds. Anticipate that the most. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and who baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to reflect his image more and more, that we would turn our eyes away from the anticipations, the cares, the worries of this life, have our eyes drawn to Christ, because whenever he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Be with us the rest of this day. Help us, Lord, to be not only this day, but as we move forward, a voice crying out in the spiritual wasteland, whether with our own mouths or enabling the church and missionaries to do so, that other people would hear and see and know Jesus, even as John and we know him. We ask in his name, amen.